Uh, let's uh, begin reading Psalm 123, a song of a, a song of ascents. That is a psalm that was sung on their way to the temple. Here's what it says: I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till He shows us. His mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. All right, good morning again. We are in, uh, still here in the worship center. We're doing things a little bit differently this morning, uh, and we, we're going to have a discussion. We've been working our way through the book of Malachi, and Malachi in particular is a book that describes for us what it means to worship God because he is worthy. God is worthy, so therefore we worship him. Uh, that is in contrast to we worship God because we get something out of it, or we worship God because we feel guilty or shameful, or we worship God because it's the popular thing to do. Uh, instead, what we learn from Malachi is we worship God because he is God and he is worthy of our worship. And we're mindful that what we might ask this question, well, what does worship look like for me uh, at church, uh, at work, at home? What does it mean if I'm going to say God is worthy and I want to worship him? How do I do that? And what are some practical ways we can uh, do that? So I got a group of people together. You're probably familiar with them, uh, and I'm going to let them uh, say good morning to you for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want to make sure Pat's mic is still not on. Uh, and uh, no, I'm kidding. We want to make sure everybody's mic is uh, working at least now. Uh, and also uh, so that you can know who's here. So uh, Seth, why don't you say good morning to us? Make sure. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, Seth. Uh, and then Pat, we have you here. So you let us know Let's you're here. Let's see if I, it works. Is my mic on? Good morning. Good morning. And then here we have Pastor Jeff. Good morning. Welcome. All right. And what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at what does it mean to worship God in four areas. And each of us are going to talk a little bit about an area of worship. And I've sort of assigned us each one of those areas of worship. Now, um, there's a lot of other areas we could have discussed, but we decided uh, on these four. Why did we pick these four? Because uh, there's just four of us. And because these are areas uh, that I thought were helpful for each of us. So, uh, we're going to talk through them, and, and we're well aware we probably won't get to all four of them today. And so my guess is we're going to continue this, this panel discussion uh, even next week. So the four areas we're going to discuss is, is what does it mean to worship God through his scripture, through reading and knowing his scripture? What does it mean to worship God by having a life of obedience to God, doing the things he has asked us to do and saying no to the things he has asked us to not do? Uh, what does it mean to worship God through prayer? And what does it mean to worship God? What does it look like to worship God through music and singing? And uh, so we're going to go through each of those. And the way that we're going to do this is one of us is going to give kind of an intro on the topic. And then we're going to have a discussion amongst ourselves. So really, uh, what you're going to do is just observe us sort of talking with one another. However, we would really love it if you were a part of the conversation. So we have someone on Facebook. My wife, Erin, is on uh, Facebook Live, for those of you watching on Facebook Live. So if you have a question or a comment on that topic, just put it in the comments box, and Erin uh, will text it to me. That's why my iPad is here this morning. Uh, if I get a text, uh, I'll be sure uh, to, we'll be sure to try and address your questions or comments that way. If you're watching on live stream, you can just put your comment there in the comments bar. Uh, Pastor Todd is in the back, and he will also send me a text, and we'll be sure to address or bring to the forefront uh, your comments or uh, questions. So we're really hopeful this is an engaging time where you, we even have a little bit of interaction uh, going on. So what does it mean to worship God through Scripture? So I'm going to look at Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24, and I'm going to read verses 24 uh, verses 25, 26, and 27, and, uh, and then just give a few thoughts and get some of your guys' thoughts as well. Here's what it says in Luke uh, 24, uh, beginning in verse 25. I had to put my reading glasses on since I'm using my paper Bible this morning. He said to them, this is Jesus, he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, he said this to them because they didn't recognize him or recognize that he was going to raise from the dead. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He said to these disciples, how foolish you are 
And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And this is the important part, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he's with these disciples after he raised from the dead. And it's interesting. He wants to show them that the Bible has proven that he was supposed to come and raise from the dead. And he starts with Moses and all of the prophets. And the way he phrases that there, he basically says all of the Old Testament is telling the story that Jesus is going to come and be uh, raised from the dead. And the reason I think that's so critically important is a lot of times we think the Old Testament is God angry, and then angry God didn't fix anything, and so therefore we better try a new chapter, New Testament, we'll do it nice. And what Jesus, he throws that theory completely out. He says, no, the story that Jesus is coming must suffer and be raised from the dead begins with Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, New Deuteronomy, goes all through First and Second Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and all of the prophets all the way through. Jesus is in uh, all of the Bible. So how is worship a part of, uh, or I should say, how is knowing and reading the Scripture worship? It's this. The Scripture is where we find Jesus, the Redeemer, that Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus, Jesus came to suffer and die and be raised from the dead for sinners. So I don't merely read the Bible or know the Bible or listen to a sermon to get new Bible trivia questions for the next time I play the Bible trivia game, if that's a game still. I'm reading the Bible and knowing the Bible to discover the Redeemer who's raised from the dead. And that's worship. That means when I read my scripture, to, to seek Christ out is how I uh, worship. And one of the questions each of us are going to answer on our particular topic topics is how do we do that personally? Uh, and the way I approach it, and I'm going to offend, I'm going to offend a whole bunch of people here. I don't, I don't even know if I should say it. Uh, I don't really do devotions uh, because devotions, in my mind, is normally you read one verse and then you read three pages of something somebody wrote about that verse. And I think there's a place for that. Oswald Chambers, his utmost for uh, my highest, or my utmost for his highest. I don't know which. Uh, the Daily Bread uh, is another good one. And I think these are good uh, readings uh, that they can, be, can help us. However, for me, what I want to do is I want to read large sections of Scripture. I want to just set aside 20 minutes of my day and just read the Bible. And just read it through. So a couple of ways I do that. I just read it through. When I get to something I don't understand, I just keep reading. I don't stop and Google it. Uh, I read it through, and sometimes I understand it, and sometimes I don't. Uh, some other things I do. Uh, it, when I miss a day, and, and I'm, I'm real pleased with my Bible reading if I read five days out of seven. Okay, If I read five days out of seven, I'm a happy camper. Um, if I miss a day and I have a, a schedule I follow, when I pick it up the, the day after I missed, I don't make up my reading. I just, that, I, no, that day is gone. I'm just going to read today. That way, a lot of people I know have, they missed a few days, and then all of a sudden they have three hours of reading they have to do. And I said, don't do that. Just, just read the scripture. Uh, and, 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 uh, and I read it through, and when I do have questions, I might write them down and, and explore them later. But the, the biggest thing I learned years and years ago, probably decades ago, is just to read scripture, 20 to 30 minutes a day, and read through the whole scripture on a routine basis. So I try to read through the Bible at least once uh, a year. And uh, so that's kind of a routine. I'm not even trying to understand it. There are places in Leviticus, they're pulling moldy stones out and burning them outside the camp, and I think, I don't know what to do with this. I just keep reading, right? If I want to know what it meant, I'd, I'd, I'd ask uh, Pat. All right. So what are some of the obstacles we face in worshiping God through the word? Number one, uh, the Bible is hard to understand, isn't it? Uh, secondly, sometimes the Bible isn't exactly a page turner. When I have six pages of genealogies to read, boy, that can be, that, that's tough slogging, right? Uh, there's sometimes things occur in the Bible that are so disturbing and offensive that I don't know what to do with them. There are stories of violence and assault in the scripture uh, and, the, and the Bible doesn't overtly uh, condemn it, and it, it can cause a pit in our stomach to go, what do I do with this? Uh, and, and finally, uh, there's just question, the, one of the obstacles is just being disciplined uh, to do it. Uh, the last little topic, and then I want to get your feedback on some of these things. How does the gospel empower worship in the scripture? This is it. We want to read the scripture to see that Jesus is Redeemer. 
when I'm reading through the scripture, I want to see the grace of Christ. And so a quick example, you say, well, how was Jericho show the grace of, of Christ? Because God uh, killed every man, woman, and child in the city, right? Anyone who wanted to be delivered found their way to Rahab the prostitute's house and was delivered. So that means anyone who wants to can receive the grace of Christ who seeks him out. So it is a story of grace. The gospel empowers uh, knowing the scripture because uh, I don't have to know it perfectly and I don't have to be the perfectly disciplined Bible reader. That's the gospel. I don't need to be filled with shame. And then finally, as I read through the Bible more and more, I discover God is really good and God is really uh, gracious. So our challenge, how do we worship God in scripture? To know God through his Bible and have a regular habit of seeking him uh, through a scripture. But I'd love to hear from you guys. What are some of your comments and some of the things you found in your Bible reading? Uh, if you have one, I guess I'm assuming that you guys read your Bibles. Uh, but what are some of your thoughts on worshiping God uh, through his scripture? One of the things that really struck me just now as you were reading, rereading the passage uh, about those followers to Emmaus is that Jesus said, we'll know who he is and what he's done because we see it in the Old Testament as mm -hmm. well. And it just struck me that that's exactly what we see in the New Testament as the writers in the New Testament are really, be, really worshiping God because they see Christ fulfilling the Old Testament. The New Testament is filled with those passages of scriptures and what it must have meant for them to begin to see and uh, not just in their teaching, but even in their writing, the worship that must have taken place hmm. as they were seeing Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing how Old Testament-y our New Testament is. And yet even for most of us, I think for most of us, even those of us who, who call ourselves pastors or ministers, uh, for most of us, the Old Testament has so many confusing and challenging things in it. We say, well, I'm just going to go and read uh, New Testament books, easier to understand, more relatable. If I'm going to be in the Old Testament, I'll read Psalms or, or the book of Proverbs. Um, but boy, it really serves the gospel well in our hearts when we know our Old Testament when we spend time reading uh, scripture. Yeah, and I find too, um, we look at a lot of the Old Testament and we in some ways discredit it because, okay, well, the New Testament is Paul and other apostles distilling the Old Testament for us to be able to understand. So all we need is the New Testament to be able to understand Jesus, follow Jesus and all of that. But you look back through Psalms and Psalm 119 is one example, but there are so many. I mean, Psalm 119 is, what, over 150 verses, and every single one of them basically says, Lord, I love your law. Mm -hmm. And David is not talking about the Old Testament 600 and something laws that have to be kept for ritual purity. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the word of God. And his heart's desire is to dwell in that word. And um, it's an act of obedience as well. He's saying, I love your law, but I know he doesn't every single day of the week love his law. Look at Bathsheba. Look at all the other things that he's done. I can show, David, you did not love the Lord's law on Tuesday, that day, for yeah. sure, uh, and probably other days as well. Um, and so you see this act of obedience as an expression of worship in training your heart to love the law by being with it. You're not going to love something you don't spend time in. You don't, well, most people don't point out a man or a woman on the street and go, I'm going to marry that person, propose and get to the marriage. Like there's this process of spending time, the dating, it takes time because you're getting to know the person, you're getting to know the depth. And we expect to open our Bible, read one passage, suddenly feel this massive, overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit and, and fall down on our knees in worship. And I tell you, I'm the worship pastor and 99 times out of 100, when I read my Bible in the morning, I put it away, I go grab a bowl of cereal, I get on with my day and I don't feel any different. And that's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just changing our understanding of the investment of time that it takes, especially in reading scripture, to get the full narrative so that you have the ability to worship the Lord um, fully and wholly. And, and you, you need that entire Genesis to Revelation picture, which takes months to get through on a pretty rigorous schedule. And, and we just, this instant expectation of worship pouring out of two verses, it's just unless the Holy Spirit really wants to do something specific, it's just normally not going to happen. That's the exception, not the rule, for sure. So it's important in terms of when we're thinking about Scripture, this is what I'm hearing you saying, so if, if, if I'm missing it, you can tell me I'm wrong. Um, I haven't been wrong yet today, so 
so I'm due. You know, it's, it's only eleven twelve. Yeah, it's early. <laughs> um, sometimes we'll look at Bible reading or our devotions, and sort of the idea is I need some some godly inspiration for my day, and and we do need God's strength for today, and we do need His power for today. However. What we're saying is regular Bible reading is not necessarily designed to get me through lunch. It's this habit and discipline of knowing God through his word is going to provide me the power through relationship with God to endure through my life. So uh, oftentimes I put it this way when I'm talking about Bible reading. I'm not reading my Bible to be ready for today. That was what I was reading last week. To be ready for today was whatever God had for me last. What I'm reading today is maybe to prepare me for what's tomorrow or next month or next year. It's, a, it's what I need to know about God today, begin processing and digesting. So whatever he has for me a week, a month, or two weeks down the road, uh, I'm, I'm prepared by his word uh, to do it. It does happen, though. There's some days you read the Bible and you just like, how did this how did oh, this happen? Absolutely. I, two weeks ago, I was reading Psalm 50, and I was just like, I mean, almost in tears, just like the words were so powerful, so alive. I just like I wanted to read the psalm like 10 times. The next morning I woke up and I didn't want to read Psalm 51. I wanted to read Psalm 50 again. It was just like, wow. And now I'm in Psalm 73 and the last 20 have been like, whatever. Yeah. So (laughs) but the the point I think that you're making as well, and I'm sorry, Jeff, I'm probably cutting you off here, but um, we can turn the mic off. We know how to do that. (laughs) They've done it more than once. (laughs) I'm just saying. But. In this process of delayed almost, it's it's exactly the experience that the, that the disciples on the road had. Mm-hmm. When Jesus was with them, uh, they were listening intently, and later they could look back and say it was burning. But it wasn't until he was out of their sight that the full impact hit him. And I'm thinking that for the most part, as we read the scriptures, many times it's a delayed response. Mm-hmm. After we've put it in, then God's spirit translates it. And whoa, that's when worship takes place. Right. Yeah, there's definitely uh, at times something for today, uh, something for tomorrow, and something in the future. And also for other people, there are times when in your relationships there's opportunities that uh, the Holy Spirit's working through, and uh, you capture that moment you know, through Scripture that can um, encourage and to uh, point people back to Jesus Christ. And um, but the main thing too, I love how the, the Word of God is all put together. God in His great uh, majesty of orchestrating words, um, he put it into a narrative. That's what I love about it. It's like the word of God from Genesis to Revelation is a beautiful story. And as a child uh, growing up through church and everything, I didn't catch that at first. Um, if anything, a lot of my uh, devotions that I was reading when I was younger uh, was in the context of a topic. Uh, the word of God is far from being a topic. You can't just find a topic in in where do I go to and, and craft the verses? And um, that's what I love about it. It's a beautiful, grand story of God's redemptive work throughout, uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, so, Greg, with that, what, what are some things that uh, have you uh, experienced in your own life in regards to that narrative? Because at times when we go through the Old Testament, uh, there are some challenging spots. So I'm like, is this really pointing to Jesus Christ or is it what's really going on here what what are some uh, specific like a framework that uh, would be helpful for people to uh, connect with uh, well first off Jeff uh, we had agreed in advance not to ask any questions that were hard all easy soft hard question yeah thank you for that um, uh, so let me I'll, I'll, let me touch on that so what happens um, is is when we're reading through the scripture the more we read the Bible through the more we'll able to make connections in, within that story. So let me just give an example of something that probably you guys knew, but it was just a connection that popped for me this week. I'm reading through Leviticus, which for many of us, that's, again, tough Love slogging. Leviticus. Yeah, you and like three <laughs> other people. Um, you, Moses, and John the Baptist love Leviticus. And there are rules in there about sexual relationships. And one of the rules is a man is not to marry his brother's wife if the brother's still alive and that's a rule okay and 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 that's a that's a good rule nobody has a problem with the rule however i was reading that and it just dawned on me when i read it that that just that one time this is the first time john the baptist was beheaded because herod wasn't following that particular law 
And because I always wondered, why was Herod so involved in politics? Why didn't he just leave Herod's marriage alone? John the Baptist should have just not mentioned his marriage to his brother's wife, and, and maybe he would have kept his head on. But then what happens is John the Baptist is filling in as the last Old Testament prophet, Elijah come again. He is talking to the leader of Israel, and his calling, if you're going to lead Israel, you need to have fidelity to God's word, and since Herod is the leader of Israel, he ought not to be violating the law by being married to his brother's wife while his, wife, his brother was still alive. What John was doing was not messing around in politics. He was being a good prophet, calling leadership to understand the will of God because all of that fits into the, the grander scheme is a redeemer is coming to save us. A redeemer is coming. And so well, one of the keys is we've got to, as we're reading through, understand the goal of the story is Jesus is coming and the whole thing fits together. But we, because the book is so long, we may not understand all those connections until we've had a chance to go through it uh, once or twice. And, okay. how many, and how many times did you read that passage before you saw that? Yeah, once or twice. Yeah, yeah <laughs> a few times. It's right. that other thing of you're not, you're not going to understand this all the first time. Right. It's this repetition. It's this reading the Bible for years and years and years. And, and I, I, in the, we have so many resources today, Internet, commentaries, all kinds of stuff. And, and we start to get this notion that, well, that the paid pastors are the ones that that are going to reveal those things to us because the Holy Spirit can't. Right. And and he can and he will, absolutely. How, how, how did those commentary writers get it in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, but we need to emphasize repetition, the faithfulness of just being in the Word over and over and over again. Yeah, We're going to close with this because we're going to move on to our, our second topic, but just a quick story because I think your point is clear. And many people are maybe uh, sitting at home. The only question we've gotten so far uh, from the folks at home is Jeff hold your mic closer so uh, Jeff if you could I think we uh, accomplished that yeah we, we we've got that going uh, but a lot of people are saying well yeah this makes sense for you guys you guys work full-time at a church and so you've got nothing but time but I this really impacted me when I was a young person I had a good friend and and we would do uh, he lived here in town and often one weekend or the other um, uh, either he'd be you know, staying over at my house or I'd be staying over at her, his house but I remember uh, one time walking by, I usually would be watching a movie or TV or something, and his dad would make his way to his room and say, hey, I'm, I'm heading up. And one day I was walking by, and I, I saw him, and I realized he wasn't going to bed. And I, he was reading his Bible in bed. And, and I asked about this. I didn't ask him. I asked uh, his wife, what's, what's he doing? He goes, as long as uh, she had known her husband. The last hour of his day was in bed, and all you just read it page, page, put a bookmark in, set it down. And that's what impacted me is I thought, here's a guy and, uh, that, that's modeling this. It just need, we just need to read it. And anybody can do it. You don't have to be a, a pastor. Just sit down and read it and set a, just set a goal for yourself. I'm going to read it 10 minutes a day, put a bookmark in, and, and uh, set it down. All right, uh, we're going to go to our next topic, which uh, is obedience. So we're going from Bible reading uh, to obedience. Uh, and uh, Pat, why don't you take some time and, and give us an intro on this topic? Okay, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, really the book of Romans, although for some reason these guys made me limit it. I couldn't do the entire book of Romans because then I'd want to do the entire Bible. So we're going to limit ourselves to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to look at just a few verses in Romans chapter 12. So if you want to flip with me to Romans 12. I'm going to start in the first two verses, which we're rather familiar with. Um, Therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then I'd like for us to drop down to verse 3, uh, and Paul continues by saying, for, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And then down just a few more verses to verses 9 and 11. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And so in these few verses tucked away in chapter 12 of um, Romans is an admonition that Paul gives us because the Holy Spirit has laid it on Paul's heart that our true and um, an appropriate worship is being obedient to Christ Jesus. In fact, as I summarized chapter 12, which really is a summary of all the chapters that go before chapter 12 and all those that follow chapter 12, not very many following, but the idea is God is really interested in my response to him. How do I respond to God? And then how do I regard others around me? And the the truth of what um, I see placed out for us in Romans chapter 12 is the um, kind of the first idea is Paul starts this by saying, therefore, because of everything that's gone before in those first 11 chapters, we're called to be responding to God appropriately and responding to others uh, as Christ would. And so it, it behooves me as a believer to know what the, what's gone before, because if I don't know the truth of what God has done for me in Christ Jesus in those first 11 chapters, there is no way I'm going to respond to God appropriately. So in the first 11 chapters, Paul has just repeated for himself as well as for us that God has taken us out of our sinful nature. I can offer myself as a living sacrifice in uh, chapter 12 because God has first taken me from death into life in my salvation experience. I once was dead in my sins, and now I am alive in Christ Jesus. And my response to God is to continue to offer myself as a living sacrifice. That means saying no to my old nature. I am in the process of offering myself as a living sacrifice by renewing my mind. For me, that's a whole lifetime of rethinking old thoughts, old sin nature patterns, changing those um, sins that so easily beset us is a, another term that Paul uses elsewhere. And so this, this idea of responding to God is a constant challenge for me personally to continue to remember what God's brought me out of. But contained in those 11 chapters before that, not only as a reminder of what I've been brought out of, who I am now in Christ Jesus, but there's also the confident assurance that I have now been grafted in, I have now been adopted into the family, and that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so in that uh, living sacrifice, in that renewing of my mind, it's, I'm still going to struggle. I'm still going to have a hard time. Living sacrifice means I'm not doing what comes easily to me. I'm not choosing what I naturally would choose. Obedience is, in fact, doing the very thing that I don't necessarily want to do or not doing the thing I want to do. Um, if, it's, if it's something I want to do, it, there's no obedience in it. And so God has called me to be obedient to him because he knows that my own sinful nature does not choose his righteousness. And so as I go through the truth of who God is and what he's done for me and in me, I also am reminded that there is nothing that can separate me from God, even my failure. So I'm continually challenged, and it'll be a lifetime uh, process. The question, what's, what's one of the obstacles? Well, me. I'm my biggest obstacle to being a living sacrifice. I am also challenged over and over again by these two admonitions that I read in the later verses in this chapter is that I am to honor people above myself. If I rightly understand that even my faith in God is a gift from him, because tucked into uh, Romans chapter 12 is also the, the instruction about the gifts in the body and how we are dependent upon one another. And I need to be reminded as a believer in Christ, as we all do, that I don't have anything to be proud of. Uh, even the gift, if he's using me in any way in the body of Christ, that's a gift from him. That's nothing of 
of my manufacturing. And so to rightly understand who I am is to humbly acknowledge that everything I have comes from my gracious God. And if I have that kind of right understanding, I should be, and I, I emphasize here, I should be rightly honoring the people around me because every one of us has first been called into relationship with Jesus Christ, not because of our merits, but because of who Christ is and what he's done. And then he has gifted each one of us so that together we're better than we are on our own. And if I could understand that, renewing my mind, constantly remembering that Pat um, serves others because God first served me. And so the, the challenge to offer myself as a living sacrifice reminds me that my true and uh, appropriate response to God is obedience to him. He is more interested in the worship that I give him, not in how I serve you guys, but in how I respond to him. If I respond to him appropriately, then I'm going to serve you with a love that's sincere. I'm going to be honoring you because you are not only uh, gifted by God, but you're a gift to me. And in that process, Paul ended this passage by saying, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So obedience is my response to who God is by serving others, by serving those in the body of Christ and the world outside in the same uh, manner that Christ did for me. And that's going to take a lifetime. That's not, and, and the thing is, sometimes I have to learn the same lesson over and over again because I respond in my old nature rather than um, stop and renew my mind by rehearsing the gospel truth of who God is and what Christ has done for me. Great. Thank you. Jeff, go ahead. Well, I just want to work off that rehearsing the gospel truth, uh, rehearsing the gospel uh, to ourselves have, has great benefit. I have found in my own life and uh, in those moments when my natural flesh wants to rebel because that comes natural. It's a, a default, as you mentioned. Um, rehearsing that grace that was offered in those moments when the flesh wants to rise, when I'm become, when I've developed this rhythm of rehearsing the gospel to myself, I find that grace comes forth. Um, and that, that, like you said, it takes practice. And it doesn't come natural. You have to be intentional with it. But it, it is a beautiful thing when, when one time looking back at a fleshly moment where there was a response from the flesh, when grace replaced that, it is a beautiful thing. And, and I think, I, I think um, not to interrupt you, Seth, but I think, Jeff, the only way we're going to be able to grapple with what you're talking about is if you'll tell us your sin. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, messing with you. Um, but, but I think it's uh, that gospel rehearsal is important because it changes saying no to sin and yes to, to whatever God has called us to, uh, humility, serving others. It's serving God not to gain his favor, serving God because we already have his favor. And that's a completely different way of approaching what does it mean to live God's way. If I'm living for God just to make him happy with me, I'm going to run out of steam. But when, like you're saying, if I'm rehearsing the gospel and saying, um, I blew it, but I'm still okay, because I have a Savior who's making intercession for me, whereas other times I'm going to say, no, I'm going to say no to that sin because Jesus is better. Both are a gospel answer to sin. One says, no, it's okay. God paid the price. The other says, no, I don't have to go down that road because God paid the price. But either way, my favor with God is found in Christ, not can I be a good little Christian? Yeah. Sorry, Seth. Uh, no, it's good. And as an aside, to tie it back to scripture reading too, it, if we really understand that all of the Bible is the gospel and that Christ is in every passage in some way or another, then whether we read one verse or we read an entire book in a sitting, we're still getting an infusion of the gospel, whether we feel it in the moment or not. And that's part of that rehearsing the gospel is just dwelling in the word. Um, and to your point of obedience, um, I think so often our ability to obey 
um, in some ways betrays our how much we actually trust in God. Um, I think to Matthew 7, when Jesus is saying, asking you will be given, um, he says, which of you, so starting in verse 9, which of you asks his son for, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, considering that we are his children, uh, give good gifts to those who ask him? And what I see in this is this, there are, are strata of understanding, and your children may want to ask for a bear trap for a pillow and not understand why that is not a good thing. It looks awesome. It would look cool in my room. Why not? And you're going, there are so many reasons why. And there's these level of understanding. Of I don't know. No, I don't. That seems like a perfectly appropriate pillow to me. Um, and, and there's just no way that I can put into their little brain why this is not a good idea. In much the same way, God is on this entirely other level of us and our understanding and when we don't obey what his scripture is saying we are saying god i don't trust that you know what is good for you that you know what is good for me and i'm going to lean on my own understanding um of what is good and what is true and what is right and i think back to i can't remember what psalm it is 35 36 um talking about um Yes, yes. The one about leaning not on your understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. We have this notion of, um, I know which way this should go. I know how I should honor the Lord. I read scripture a lot. I know what true worship looks like. And we get these really defensive positions on what true worship looks like. Um, and oftentimes it's in direct disobedience of scripture because we're so militantly set on this way. And we forget that God is the one directing that and the way he directs that best is through our obedience, not through us having a really good understanding of Scripture and figuring out how we are going to serve the Lord on our own. One of the things that really struck me as I've been really diving into this passage of Scripture, um, as Greg said, one of those aha moments this week was, I've, I sometimes want to categorize worship as what I'm doing, whether I'm singing or reading the Scripture or serving somebody else. Um, in those altruistic moments. And as I read this passage of scripture, much as you're quoting Proverbs it, or Psalms, is the idea that my worship really takes place in my heart of hearts when I rightly recognize who he is, rehearsing the gospel, and responding to him in a manner that allows him to be elevated and I am minimized. That that is my true worship. It's not what I'm doing, it's who I am. And then it's what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. I'm doing it in response to him. So my worship, uh, as I've seen it this week in New Clarity, is really uh, from my heart. And worship takes place every time I say no to me and yes to his spirit. Michelle uh, uh, online uh, sent in a, a comment about the world and wanting uh, an understanding. Well, what does that mean? Do not be... Uh, conformity along to the pattern of the world and i think that's fair uh to say well is because a lot of times we misconstrue that and we say oh the world is uh the big bad naughty place outside the church building and the fact is uh the world is that system that's derived in opposition to god and if we're really honest with ourselves a bit of that is still remaining in every single person. So certainly non-believers are, the Bible describes, slaves to sin. Christians were no longer slaves to sin, but that fallen part of us, that, that not home yet part of us, still leans into the world and its system and yearns for it. And that's why worship says, no, God is better than that. So when we say don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, we're not setting up a we're better than you what we're setting up is a, a, my hope is in Christ, not in my appetites and yearnings. Uh, is that what you were saying, Pat, or and, are we missing Well, that? no, that's exactly. Is if we had the opportunity to read through the whole chapter of uh, Romans 12, Paul concludes by saying, well, of course, he says, you know, don't, don't respond with revenge, but rather let, let God take care of all of those, uh, what we would look as almost pacifistic responses to the aggression of the world. But he concludes the chapter by saying, overcome evil with good. 
And if I limit what God is saying here to the world is just, you know, the big bad world out there, uh, that I'm going to overcome their evil by being somehow good. And yet when I read this in the spiritual tone that God is saying, my worship is how I'm responding to these things, this is the evil that lurks inside of me. <laughs> this is the old nature that wants to keep me in the trap that the enemy has set for me, continually telling me lies. This is the evil that says there is no good thing in me, and the only thing that is here is because Christ is in me. So overcome evil with good has more to do with me than it does with my response to what's outside. Yeah, uh, Adam, let me just tie in with that because that helps. Because Adam mentions, uh, he says this, uh, is that saying that our ultimate example of what it means to obey is Christ on the cross? And that's absolutely. Uh, so we have two, two things with Christ on the cross. Number one, he is the ultimate having obeyed. Having, uh, on the other hand, in him we find all our, our obedience completed by faith. So all of my obedience can merely be worship because I don't need to atone for anything. And so his obedience is the best example, and his obedience is actually by faith. What I am saying is my obedience is done. When he said it's finished, my obedience is finished too. All of my obedience after that is just worship. Just God is that awesome. Jeff, sorry. No, I was, and I would uh, clarify what's good. That is good. Christ likeness is good, as the example. And that's in my personal life. That's how I came to know Jesus Christ because, with His death on the cross, that that grabbed a hold of my heart. That He stayed on the cross. Um, he could have come off. He had all the power in the world. He could have rebelled, but His obedience to the cross, and um, that's a beautiful thing. One, one quick thing, and I'll have maybe, if you want to chime in, you can, but uh, we're almost out of time. Because uh, I think we're done at two, right? Uh, so, okay. Um, uh, one other thing on this. Many people approach their struggle with sin, or their struggle not to refrain from doing something bad, but their struggle to do what's right. Um, their, their assumption is that at a certain point in their Christian life, they're going to want to not sin. They're gonna, that, app, that is going to go away. And the reason they struggle with sin is because they want to sin. And somehow in their minds, um, uh, they think, of, well, sin will go away when I know God enough that I don't want to sin anymore. And maybe you guys could help me. Is that a good expectation? Or where do you put that expectation in the realm of reasonableness? So whoever wants to chime in. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I wrestle with that. Um, because I think there is evidence of that in Scripture, but the um, how effectively it is going to consume you and actually overtake your desires varies from person to person. Um, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, John Piper, is a big proponent of this Christian hedonism idea, which is basically we are most satisfied in God um, when he's most glorified in us. Or They're both true right and so um our ultimate pleasure is derived from god um and that will satisfy the longings that drugs money sex everything else doesn't fully fulfill and, and that's i think that's true and that's accurate but then i also heard him say once that i would like to tell you that my desire to sin has gone down but I think in reality, in my old age, my ability and the opportunity to do it has just become more difficult. And so now it's just harder mm. to get away with this particular sin. It's not that I desire it right. any less. And, and it, it's such a person-by-person -person basis. We have I mean, testimonies of people in this church who were saved and instantly never cussed again. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then other people who it's a long and grueling process and they deal with the same sin for 20, 30, 40 years. And, and I don't think it's because God is any less faithful with one of them or the other, but this, without diverging too far, also has to, you have to go into the um, theology of suffering. Mm -hmm. And, and why, are we, why did Paul have a thorn in his flesh that he asked God three times to take away and he didn't, whereas Jesus was instantly healing thousands of other people? You have to wrestle with that, and that can make you uncomfortable. There's a lot of weird theologies out there that exist because they don't know how to wrestle with that, that reality. So I'm going to cut you off.
because you've got a great answer and we don't No, I'm kidding because <laughs> Dale has a fantastic question. And so I want to, we'll leave this with this. In some ways, our desires might be changed. In some ways, they might not be. So for the Christian who uh, all of a sudden, they don't cuss anymore, they don't uh, do whatever anymore, and that desire is gone, all I would say to you is you should thank the Lord every day. Amen. Now, there's, for those of you, though, who are struggling with sin and the argument, God, why has this desire not gone away? Welcome to the club. Amen. Welcome to the team of we're not home yet. And that's okay. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with your spirituality. Keep seeking the Lord transformatively. But Dale asked this question. We're going to close uh, this topic with this question. We're going to save the other two topics for next week. Dale asked this question. How do you ensure the Holy Spirit is directing your path and not your flesh or desire? So we're looking here now at obedience. I'm going to seek the Lord in a particular way. Should I move here, take this job, marry this person, invest this money, donate this money. How do I know? Um, is this the Holy Spirit leading? Is this the flesh leading? Um, and, and you guys are hoping the live stream is going to cut out and we won't have to answer the question, right? I'm deferring so, to the full timers on this no, one. No, brother. Okay. Yeah. So how do we know when the Holy Spirit is directing our path? How do we know? Or can we? Uh, maybe that's a fair question. You're going to take a whack at it, Jeff? Go. No, I'll take a stab just through personal experience. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we have uh, amazing freedom to decide uh, who we're going to marry, what job we're going to take. Uh, but when we know for sure it's directed from the Holy Spirit, what's neat about the, the work of the Holy Spirit, um, it always stays within the narrative, uh, the narrative of the redemptive narrative. And uh, what I love the work of the Holy Spirit is that um, uh, it illuminates uh, who God is and uh, his purpose for me is that uh, God's at work crafting me into his glory and his purpose. And the Holy Spirit illuminates uh, the work of Jesus Christ in my life and uh, talks about the worship, our response to be like Christ-likeness. And, um, and then just um, uh, the peace. Uh, I, I experience uh, the peace, the overwhelming peace that has really hard words to describe. I, there, there are times where there are no words that will describe uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in me, the clarity that the Holy Spirit brings, uh, but also enjoying the freedom, knowing that whatever choice that I make, uh, flesh or from the Holy Spirit, uh, God's in control all the way around it. And uh, we talked about it a little bit with suffering and, and hard things. Sometimes the hard things will bring us back to the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think there's an, another real important caveat here is... Um, it will be a lifetime of being able to rightly discern the Holy Spirit's nudgings in those areas of obedience. But the overarching truth is it is finished. God is not going to dismiss me or castigate me if I wrongly interpret one decision or ten decisions. Um, that blood of Christ is sufficient to cover me. So this life of faith is trial and error in some ways. Is this the right house or is that the right house? Um, I'm going to trust my God is bigger than the house. And that if, if it's not the right uh, interpretation of his leadership, he's big enough to fix it and, and make it work for my good and his glory. I think we sometimes think of God being a redeemer as one act mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago on the cross. And that was the payment. That was the redemption. Now we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And while to some extent that is true, we need to remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still redeeming us. Uh, you're going to make stupid mistakes, stupid decisions. Um, you know, you guys have already covered it so well. Faith is a huge element. You have to trust that who he says he is is who he is going to be. And and continue to trust that he is directing our path if we are following him and, and trusting him. And then remember that he has already redeemed us out of eternal death. I think redeeming us out of buying the wrong house in the wrong neighborhood, that's going to be easy. That's right. that's. He's already done the most difficult redemption process. Small potatoes, exactly. It's, it's this anything else that... God that we could, you know, put in front of God as, oh, how is he going to get over that obstacle? He already conquered death. Right. He already redeemed us out of the mire and the muck while we were yet sinners, while we were still in the process of rebelling. 
how much more is God going to act now that we are trying to follow him and love him? I think in, in discerning is the spirit moving, and I think specifically what I'm thinking, because I've grown up in this particular church, and so maybe I could speak into a particular bent. So I'll, I'm going to say this outright. Sometimes the spirit does move. Sometimes the spirit does speak and say, no, do this in particular. Uh, and so what we want to say, first and foremost, is uh, just because rev revelation got finished doesn't mean God doesn't direct us in particular ways, and we should be mindful of that. Uh, we should be aware when we seek the Lord for specific guidance, he might give us specific guidance. But there's a couple of other ways we need to understand that. Number one, does his word address it? If his word addresses something we're seeking, then we need to recognize, well, what does his word say? Uh, secondly, I think there's also uh, in the scripture a sense of yieldedness to the spirit. So uh, the Bible talks about quenching the spirit. If in the rest, unbalance, if my life is a life of quenching the spirit. So if I spend my day telling the spirit, no, I'm going to do this, this, that. If my life is a life of quenching the spirit, I think it's going to be more difficult for me to discern when the spirit is leading. So I think one of the things, too, it doesn't mean, well, does that mean I have to be a good Christian for the Spirit to speak to me? No. It, what we're talking about here is a bent. You know, is my life seeking to be pressed into the things of God or the things of my flesh? It's just going to be harder to hear the Spirit uh, if my life is leading away from this. Just like with Jeff, the microphone was going away. It's harder to hear Jeff the further he is away from that mic. And I think if that's a silly illustration, we do that. I'm way over here. The Spirit is speaking. I need to be pressing into that. Um, uh, the other thing is see good counsel. Sometimes the Spirit is difficult to discern because I want something so bad, and my flesh is so aflamed uh, and uh, engaged, and I want something so bad, I'm going to say that the Spirit is doing it. Going to somebody I trust who has the ability to tell me no, and they can say, no, that's just your flesh. You're just being an idiot. Okay, um, and then I'm going to tell them they're demon-possessed and do what I want. That's what we do, right? <laughs> so I think these are all things. I've got to be in his word. I need to be seeking him through obedience. And, and yes, sometimes I will get a quiver in my liver. You know, no, I just, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, and we should do that and uh, see what God says. Okay.